Today we're going to be looking at these wise men, the magi, and their response of worship. So if you would, out of adoration for God's holy word, please stand with me as we read this passage together. I'm going to read Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. This is God's authoritative and holy word. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared, and he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And after listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh, And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So it's the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Father, we acknowledge that this is your word, that you speak to us, that we might know you and how we might live in a way that's pleasing to you. We pray that you would help us to have ears to hear, help us to see our Savior, Jesus Christ, that we might worship you through him. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> One of the things that we love about the Christmas season is the ability, the opportunity that we have to sing our favorite Christmas songs, our carols and our hymns. It's a, a wonderful way for us to praise our God, the gift of song. It's also an excellent way for us to learn and retain information which kids was one really good reason why you, it is good for you to participate in the Zion Kids Choir to sing songs, learn these songs. Um, it's one reason why our God calls us to sing the psalms and hymns. God uses music, lyrics to implant his truths deep within our hearts. But as much as we love, as lo- as much as we love songs... Uh, it's always important for us to go to Scripture first as the source of our uh, information, our source of truth, even when we're singing songs or hymns that teach a biblical truth. Now, uh, this, this story from our passage, I'm sure you're familiar, uh, is taught in the Christmas carol, We Three Kings, and it's one that we have all learned it might surprise you to learn that uh, this particular hymn is not in our hymnal. 
It's not because it's a bad song. It's simply because it's a song that's not that helpful in giving us a true understanding of uh, this particular story from Scripture. For the Bible doesn't say that there were three men that came to visit Jesus. It doesn't just say how many men came to Jesus. It doesn't say that they were kings. It calls them wise men or magi. And it doesn't even say that they came from the Orient or what we would think of as the Orient. But I think the most uh, problematic part of that song is that uh, the point of this story isn't about the visitors from the East. It isn't about their gifts. It isn't even about a star in the sky. The point of this story is worship. This story is about the Almighty God drawing people from the farthest reaches of the world to come and worship his son, the newborn king of the Jews. And that's what we need to see in this passage as we look at this together, that this is a story about worship, that God draws us to his son so that we would worship him. The story is a well-known story. We can outline it very basically by saying that the Magi seek God's Son because God draws them to His Son so that they would worship His Son. So it begins by the Magi seeking the Son. It says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. So the, we have this uh, term, wise men. The, the proper term in the Greek would be one of magi. These are, uh, magi is the title, and these are men who are coming from the east, east of Israel. Now, the magi was originally a proper title for a priestly caste of Persian scholars who would advise the king on important matters. Over time, it became a uh, more broader term to refer to learned men and priests who practiced astrology. Kids, that's a study of the stars and trying to learn things from the stars. So the Magi would practice astrology. They would interpret dreams. And in some cases, they would practice magic arts. Magic arts. But they were either Persian or Babylonian, so think modern-day Iran or Iraq. Um, In Daniel chapter 1 and 2, we see magi in the story of Daniel. They are called the magicians, a longer form of the word magi. They are the ones who were called by Nebuchadnezzar and commanded to interpret Nebuchadnezzar's dreams. And by the time of Jesus' birth, There were magi all over the Roman world, but most of them were in Babylonia or Persia. And now the the Old Testament forbade God's people, prevented, prohibited God's people from using divination of this kind, of any kind. Um, And so this was a largely a negative term, the magi. Uh, In Acts chapter 13, there is a character, Bar-Jesus, who is 
also has this title of a, of a magi. And Paul confronts him and says that you are a, a worker of evil, an enemy of righteousness. So there wasn't, it wasn't well thought of in the world, especially by the Israelites, but it was prevalent. So it was largely, these people were largely ignored and accepted in their context. But whatever they were, what we know is these were not Israelites. These were not God's covenant people. These were people from the east, from Persia or Babylonia, probably over a thousand miles away from Jerusalem. So think about coming, leaving Prosper, Texas, and going in a caravan to either Phoenix, Arizona, or Charlotte, North Carolina. It's a long journey in a car, let alone on camels in a caravan. And yet that's what these men, these magi did. They came seeking the king. And they came because God drew them to his son. So as they says they came to Jerusalem and they said, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star when it rose and have come to worship him. So they practiced astrology. They looked at the stars. They tried to discern certain things. And they saw his star. And this was a particular time where people believed that stars would do, which appear or there would be certain astronomical signs when a king or someone important was born. Uh, tradition held that uh, a star notified magi when Alexander the Great was born to become king over Asia. So they had this mindset. It was not out of the norm. And whatever they saw, they looked at the stars and they said, king of the Jews has been born, we must go and find him. Now scholars in our day have tried to figure out what in the world they they may have seen. There are some thoughts that it was a natural occurrence like a comet or a nova or supernova or something called a planetary conjunction, which is when multiple planets come in alignment and astronomers, astrologers, read something into that alignment. Uh, That's one view is a natural course of events. Another is that it was some kind of supernatural event that God so ordained a star in the sky to to highlight the location of his son. But regardless of whether it was a natural or miraculous celestial event, what we know is that God drew these men to his son. Even the Israelites, God's people, have always believed that God sovereignly ruled over even the stars in the sky and brought these things to pass. And these men saw this star and they came to worship him. God drew them to his son. But the astrology, notice, it only got them so far. It only got them so far. They actually came to the wrong place and to the wrong king. Now, Herod would have considered himself the king of the Jews. And when these men from the east saw this star appearing in the west, and they determined that there was a king of the Jews born, it would have been logical for them to assume that that baby was born in Herod's household in Jerusalem. 
And so that's where they go with their caravans, coming into Jerusalem and causing a stir. And the people of Jerusalem have no knowledge of any newborn king. So they come in and they say, where, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? We've seen his star when it rose and have come to worship him. The people hear the question, they see the commotion of the caravans, and there's a stir in the city, and the stir, the presence, the questions come to Herod's ears, and Herod is troubled. Because Herod is a paranoid leader. He is threatened by the potential of a new king displacing him. But he's not heard of any new political leader that's been born. He knows of no one. So his mind apparently goes to the thought of perhaps this is the Messiah that has been prophesied. And so he calls the biblical experts, the chief priests and the scribes into his presence. And he says, where is the Christ to be born? Tell me, where is the Christ to be born? And they respond correctly. They say, in Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written by the prophet, the prophet Micah, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least in the means among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So he knows that this child is to be born in Bethlehem. So he begins to scheme. You've noticed he calls in these magi secretly. And he hatches this plan. He says, yes, he would be in Bethlehem. Go to Bethlehem. Go search diligently, carefully. Find him. And when you find him, let me know because I want to worship him too. I want to worship him too. And so armed with the precise location, they set their course for Bethlehem. And the star reappears. As verse 9 says, listening to the king, they went on their way. Behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. Now, kids, if we, if we go out and we look at the stars and we follow what's going on with the stars as we move, it feels like the stars move when we move and they stop when we stop. But these magi saw the star go on ahead of them. It moved on its own beyond them. And Bethlehem is only about six miles away from Jerusalem. Six miles is not a very far distance to be using the, the stars as a guide. I think what we can see is this was clearly God's miraculous movement of this star. The, the, the text suggests that the star moved and it stopped. It came to rest. It sat right over the particular place, the particular house where Jesus and his mother was. They saw it and they rejoiced. It says uh, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. They were full of joy because their journey, their long journey was finally coming to an end. They would finally see this king. So notice, notice all the ways that the Lord drew them to his son. He used the stars in the sky. He used the scheming of a paranoid leader, and he used the clarity of Scripture to pinpoint the actual location. And God did this. God drew them through these means so that his son would be worshipped. And that was their intent from the very beginning. We have come to worship him, and now that they are at the house, 
that's exactly what they did. It says, going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. You see different ways that they are worshiping. The first is with reverence and awe. It says they fell down, they bowed down, physically prostrated their, themselves before this child. That was a customary way of showing deference, honor to someone that was greater than themselves. And here they bow down before this child. You know, Scripture is very clear it teaches us very clearly that we are, to, we are not to worship anyone but God. Even in the Ten Commandments, it says, you shall not create any idols. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I am a jealous God. And in the New Testament, we see instances of that as well. In the book of Acts, there's a situation where Paul and Barnabas are in a place, and the people think that they are gods, and they begin to worship them, and and they say, men, what, what are you doing? We are, we are men just like you. You cannot do this. And even in the book of Revelation, the apostle John, after having received revelation from an angel in all of his glory, begins to fall down and worship before this angel. And the angel says, you must not do that. I am a mere servant like yourself. But here are these foreigners, these astrologers fall down before this tiny child. There's no rebuke. There's no hesitancy. Because this is no mere child. This is the very Son of God incarnate, and he is worthy of worship. So they give him their reverence, but they also give him their gifts. And they offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And there's a couple different views on why they gave these gifts to this child. The first is that these are simply kingly gifts to offer. Uh, you might remember in the book of 1 Kings, in chapter 10, there's a story about when King Solomon grew in his wisdom and splendor, that the queen of Sheba came to visit him to marvel at his wisdom. And First Kings says that she gave him gold and many fine spices. Gold, in biblical times, just as in ours, was a valuable gift, a kingly gift. But so also were these spices. Frankincense and myrrh were not common Spices, they were expensive. They were used in perfumes and ointments. And we have reason to believe that that's what the Queen of Sheba gave Solomon. And so there could be this hint that what Matthew is doing here is he's saying Solomon's greatest son has been born. Even the king of the Jews. And in, in these visitors from the east, like Queen, the Queen of Sheba, coming to bow before this baby, and offer gifts is indication of his royalty and his kingly stature. The other interpretation of these gifts you may have heard, and, and that is that each of these gifts has a symbolic meaning, an intentional purpose for why those gifts were there. The gold symbolizing his kingly nature, the frankincense which was used in the tabernacle 
in the worship of God's people symbolized that this was God incarnate. And myrrh, which was used as a burial spice, symbolized that this child was mortal and would die. And this view uh, was first put out by an early church father by the name of Irenaeus in 180 AD. And he said, they offer myrrh to him who is to die, gold to him whose kingdom will not end, incense to the God of the Jews who now manifests himself to the Gentiles. Beloved, I don't think there's any conflict in those two views. I think both of those things can be true because the Lord Jesus Christ truly was the King of the Jews. And not just that, he was the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He was born and it was right for him to receive praise and gifts and honor as the King. The Magi may not have known the fullness of who this child was. They were outside of God's covenant people. They didn't have the clarity of Scripture But God did. God knew exactly who his son was. And Matthew records for us in this biblical permanence the intentionality of these gifts so that we might have a sense of who this child was. So, beloved, as we consider this, you know, what we have to see is that God, the Almighty God, calls men and women and boys and girls, he draws them to his son to worship him. Um, And what's more, God must draw us. Scripture is very clear. God must draw us to his son so that we would worship him. And when he does, we must worship him. The Bible says that all of us are like sheep that have gone astray each going his own way. We're not seeking after Christ. We're not seeking after salvation. We're going our own way. God must draw us. And Jesus said this. He says, no man can come to me unless the Father himself draws him to me. But beloved, praise God, that's exactly what God does. That's exactly what God did for these magi. That's what exactly what God does for you and for me. That's how he, he works. And he draws us, even, beloved, in accordance with our personalities, our unique personalities and the situations in our life. Consider the magi. The magi were astrologers. They were people who interpreted dreams and sought direction for that. So how did God appeal to them? How did he draw them? He used the movement of stars in the sky. He spoke to them in a dream. And his intentionality was to draw them to his son. God still works in a similar fashion. That he, he has created his creation with his invisible qualities, Scripture says. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the works of his hands. He has has created all things embedded with his fingerprints. And we see it. We experience it. And God uses that to draw us to himself. We're drawn to his glory. Some of us are particularly drawn to the beauty of creation 
And we might look at the beauty of a sunset. We might see the breathless scene of a night sky. We might be captivated by the majesty of snow-capped mountains. We might feel the power of the roaring of the ocean, or we might see the precious gentleness of a tiny baby and see God's handiwork on display. And then when we hear the explanation that the world gives that this is all a cosmic accident, it's strangely dissatisfying and shallow. Or some of us have more of a philosophical bent and there are profound questions of our existence or of the universe that cannot be answered reasonably beyond, any, beyond the explanation of an eternal creator of all things in, in endowing us with reason and order in our experience. There are some of us who love the beauty of literature and poetic verse, and we read these things, and we, it excites the imagination of a creator God who may have not only created language, but also communicates to us with clarity and elegance. And even for some of us who are more math and science oriented, we, we can see elements of God's glory nudging him, nudging us towards him. I, when I was in my undergrad, I had a math professor, no joke, a math professor wrote an equation on the board and was literally dancing in the classroom because this math equation demonstrated the simplicity and power of God's creative genius in math. And that's what God does. That's what God has done with his creation. His creation, his, his creative order sets us in the right direction to question, to, to seek after who he is. But it's insufficient to lead us to Christ, just as those stars were insufficient to lead the Magi to Christ. God also draws us through the work of providence. Scripture says that God drives, he, he uh, conditions the hearts and minds and thoughts of mankind. He, he steers through our experiences that we have. Herod was scheming, and that's how the Magi ended up in Bethlehem, getting the information that they needed. In the Old Testament, Joseph was sent to Egypt because his brothers schemed to kill him. Most marvelously, the Lord Jesus Christ hung on the cross and was crucified because evil men, wicked men schemed to take his life. And that was the means by which we are saved. God worked his purposes through that wickedness. And beloved, if you trace how God has been working in your life, I'm sure that you can identify people and conversations and even wickedness and suffering that God has used to steer you in the right direction. But beloved, none of those things are sufficient to lead us to the true source and object of our worship, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. By that, or for that, we need the clarity of God's word. Just like the Magi needed to hear from God's word 
where Christ was. So we need to hear the clarity of God's word. Speaking in scripture, it is in God's word that God speaks with authority. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And God speaks through his word. In his word, he shines a light on his son, Jesus Christ, even as we see in this passage. And he says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Worship him. Look to him. This is my beloved son. He fixes our eyes on Christ. Through creation and providence, God nudges us in the right direction. But in Scripture, that's where God takes us in his, in our, in his hands and he looks us full in the face and he speaks to us with clarity and love. I said this is a passage that is about worship, beloved, and I think there are three responses, uh, worship responses in this passage. I don't know if you caught them all. The first is the obvious one. It's the Magi who have sought after Christ from far away and have finally made it there and actually worship him. The second one, while the, the Magi are seeking, Herod is scheming. He pretends to want to worship. He, he has no intent to worship Christ. He only wants to find out where he is so that he might put him to death. And we'll hear more about that next week. But while the Magi are seeking and Herod is scheming, the third one is the scribes and the chief priests. They're just staying. These are the men who are the shepherds of God's people. These are the teachers of the law. These are the men who ought to have been eagerly anticipating the coming of the Messiah. And they've got the right answer. And they do nothing. They don't follow in the caravan to Bethlehem to worship the Savior. They don't even seem to care. I've heard it said that human unrighteousness is not our biggest threat. It is human righteousness. When we feel like we are righteous in and of ourselves, we don't need Christ. These men don't seem to even be affected by the fact that the, the Messiah has been born in Bethlehem. Let us go with joy and find him. They do nothing. And consider the radical reversal of the way things are. I mean, these are the scribes, and they do nothing. And yet, who does come? Foreigners from the east, those apart from God's grace, those who haven't received this revelation up until this particular point. They travel a thousand miles to worship a baby. So, beloved, what's your worship response? How do you respond to the Lord Jesus Christ? Our Savior has been born. He has lived. He has died. He has been raised to new life. He has been ascended into the heavenly places. He is building his kingdom. How do you respond to that? We, we dare not oppose him as Herod did. We dare not even ignore him as the scribes and the chief priests. We must worship him. God has drawn you and me to Christ so that we might worship him with joy and gladness. 
I think this passage even teaches us a bit about worship, how we ought to worship. We can see it in how the Magi worship, and it begins by the, the Magi seek. We are called to seek after Christ. Now, I know that might not sound like a very Calvinistic thing for us to say, that we should seek after Christ, but it is a Calvinistic thing because it is a biblical thing for us to do. The Lord Jesus Christ said, Come to me, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He said, Seek and you shall find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. We can seek because God is drawing us as we seek. He has put before us the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, seek while he may be found. Do it, for that is what we are called to do. This is what the Father, he is, he is drawing us to his Son. As we seek, we ought to do so with joy. These magi, it says, they, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. That's exuberant joy. Beloved, we have such a unique gift in knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. You have been given a unique gift in knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. That ought to fill your heart with joy, exceedingly great joy, because to know Christ is to know eternal salvation. Jesus said, this is eternal life, that they know you, the one true and living God, and Jesus Christ whom you sent. Jesus came to reveal the love of the Father, and if you know Christ, you have been set free and you've been given riches of untold measure. That ought to make you want to dance, even though we're Presbyterian. <laughs> it should fill you with joy. He, is, he has given you a gift and the privilege of looking upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Third, we ought to worship him. We must worship him with reverence and awe. These, these magi, they bowed down in reverence to this baby and his teenage mother. They worshiped this child. Do you have the same holy fear and reverence before the Lord Jesus Christ? He has been ascended into the heavenly realms. He has been given all authority and he is patiently awaiting the day when he will come and judge all men even now, he commands us to worship him. This is the holy God incarnate. This is our Savior, and this is our God. We must worship. Scripture says that there will come a day when every knee will bow and every tongue confess to Jesus Christ as Lord. It is an eventuality. We will do it. And we have been given the privilege of doing it even now. And finally, we ought to give him our treasures. The Magi gave gold and frankincense and myrrh. Beloved, you and I have been commanded to give him everything. All of our time, all of our talents, all of our treasures. The Apostle Paul said, Therefore, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This, this is your spiritual act of worship. Your very being, your very life, is what your king claims, is what your king deserves, is what we must offer to him, is our 
love and our devotion. Because this king is our king. And he has saved us and he has brought us into his kingdom. And so, beloved, if you, God calls, he draws men to his son. But if you don't yet know the Lord Jesus Christ as your savior, if you have not yet bowed the knee to Christ, then know for certain, as as surely as you hear my voice, your God is drawing you to his son. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of God's mercy. He is offering his son to you to save you, to set you free, to rule and to reign over you and to protect you for all eternity. And I implore you, I implore you, worship him, bow before him. You might think, well, you don't know what I've done. I've never, it's been, I'm too far away. Beloved, the Magi were thousands of miles away. These were pagan astrologers. And God drew them to his son. Your God knows you. He loves you. And he is ready and eager to save. Put your trust in him. The song, We Three Kings, not all of it's helpful. But the last verse is helpful. And it says this, Glorious now, behold him arise, King and God and sacrifice. Alleluia, alleluia, earth to heaven replies. Beloved, what a glorious biblical truth that this child is our King and our God and our sacrifice our perfect sacrifice, the one who has reconciled him, reconciled us to God. Alleluia. (laughs) Alleluia. Let us praise him and worship him with joy and reverence and with our very lives. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your precious love for us. Thank you that you have sought after us that you might lavish upon us, blessing upon blessing, even your very presence. We pray that you would help us to worship you as you deserve with joy and gladness. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.